We are studying our way through a portion of the book of Exodus known as the book of the covenant. It's a collection of laws given by God to his people, the Israelites, to help them build a society after being freed from slavery in Egypt. A society that would reflect Israel's status as the people of God by reflecting the values of God in the way they lived out their everyday lives. And if you're thinking, well, why would this be useful to me in 2020, Jeff? The answer is that these laws reveal the heart and values of God. And so we're going to look beyond the surface level of these laws. We're going to try to dig down and learn what they reveal about the character of God. Last week, we began to see how well God's ways work. Even though these laws are from another time and place, it's very clear that they would produce a very different society to ours in a good way. There would be near instant justice for the victims of crimes. Lies wouldn't find a home in courtrooms. There would be no jails and on and on and on we could go. One of the main points that we should be drawing from the book of the covenant is the simple reminder that God's ways work best. He is the only one who sees the full picture. He's the only one who knows how laws will affect everyone in every situation in a society. God has never made a law and then later had to say, I'm going to need to revise the law because it's resulted in some unintended consequences. God has never had to say, well, I didn't see that coming. He knows everything. He knows what is best for you and I over the course of our entire lives and into eternity. And so as we read through these laws, and as we imagine the kind of society these laws would produce, we should be humbly reminded that God's ways are always best. And becoming a mature believer is almost entirely about coming to terms with the reality and truth that God's ways are best. And then out of that understanding, learning how to trust God on a daily basis, even when you don't have all the information, even when you don't have all the answers you'd like to have. And so we're going to jump into our text in just a moment in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. And while you're turning there, I do just want to remind any parents who might be watching with children that we are going to be talking about the subject of abortion in this message. I'm not going to be gratuitously shocking. I'm not going to describe the medical procedure in any way. And I'm going to do my best to share God's heart on the subject and God's heart for those who have been through an abortion. Now let's jump in. You may recall from last week that verses 12 through 17 of Exodus 21 address four crimes that God says are worthy of the death penalty. And in Exodus 21, 16, the Lord says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. As BJ pointed out a couple of weeks ago, this verse proves that the slavery in Egypt was very different to how we think of slavery in the 21st century. Nobody was forced to be a slave against their will at this time. And in fact, this law would assign the death penalty to anyone who even attempted to kidnap somebody else. 
to state the obvious, the laws which carry the death penalty in the book of the covenant reveal issues that God takes very, very seriously. These are the offenses of which God says there is no rehabilitation. There is no second try. You're done. If you do this, you are no longer fit to live in human society. Your earthly life is over. And kidnapping is one of those things. Can you imagine how different our society would look if when someone was caught even trying to abduct a child or a woman, they received the death penalty? Can you imagine how different our society would look if when a teenager or child runs away, there weren't predators waiting to lure them into the world of trafficking because those people would be risking the death penalty? This law provided protection against all forms of forced labor and involuntary slavery, and it protected the most vulnerable members of a society, especially women and children. So make a note of this. A nation's justice system is a reflection of its moral values. A nation's justice system is a reflection of its moral values. And that's why God cared so much about this stuff, because Israel's justice system reflected Israel's values. And Israel's values were supposed to reflect God's values to the world. You know, reading this verse, it reminded me that our society today is just so foolish in so many ways. So foolish. Just take the Me Too movement, for example. So, you know, for, for a couple of years now, there's been all this talk about how we, we need to educate men more about how to treat women so that sexual assaults will go down. We need more awareness. We need more seminars. We need more mandatory training sessions in the workplace. And, and on and on and on go this long list of things that, that people cry out for and say, we need this to change. We need this to change. We need this to change. This is how we're going to address uh, sexism. This is how we're going to address sexual assault and put an end to all this stuff. And then I see stuff in the press all the time, like a local article in my area from two weeks ago, which described a convicted rapist who had just been sentenced to two years in prison. Two years. What a joke. What an absolute miscarriage of justice. Do you know why they didn't need a Me Too movement? under God's law, because rapists received the death penalty. The death penalty. Do you know why they didn't have police who had to issue warnings to the public when someone who had gone to jail for child abduction or rape was being released from prison into the community because they had served their sentence? Do you know why they didn't have to have police let everyone know, hey, be on the lookout, this guy's moving into your area, because that person would be dead? They would have received the death penalty because God says there is no rehabilitation. There is no second try. You try to abduct someone, you rape someone, you're done. You're done. You see, our society talks like we care deeply about the vulnerability of women and children. But our justice system tells the truth. We don't. We don't. And so until our justice system changes, that's all it is. It's just talk. It's just talk. It's just emptiness. 
because a society's justice system reflects the values of the society. And our society's justice systems reveal that we clearly don't think trafficking people and sexual assault and kidnapping are a very big deal. We talked about verse 17 last week, and so we're just going to jump ahead to verse 18. And verses 18 through 27 shift gears and discuss personal injury law, where the death penalty is generally not warranted. In verse 18, it says, If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. That just means exempt from punishment. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. The principle that God is getting at here is restitution. Restitution. And God is teaching his people that we have a moral obligation to make things right when we wrong somebody, even if it's accidental. And this is still true for us, by the way, under the New Covenant. There's so many New Testament scriptures that speak to this principle. We have a moral obligation to make things right when we wrong somebody. In this example, the man who caused injury is required to cover the lost wages and medical treatment of the injured party until he has fully recovered and can return to work. Note that there's no mention, however, of compensation for mental trauma or distress. There's a command to cover his lost wages and his medical treatment for as long as it takes him to recover. And obviously, the amount of his lost wages will depend on how much he was earning in his occupation. Nothing more, nothing less. This simple and fair law prevented frivolous lawsuits and ridiculous compensation claims by providing a clear, simple standard of restitution. You couldn't have a person who accidentally had their arm broken but then wanted $2 million for mental anguish. You couldn't have a person who was working a minimum wage job and lost the ability to work for nine months sue for $5 million in compensation. But let me say this again. I believe it's a moral obligation, an obligation in the eyes of the Lord for us today, even if we're not legally obligated. Do you understand that? That that as a Christian, you and I are bound to God and to his moral system, to his laws, to his values. We're not only bound to the legal system of the country we live in. We don't get to say God has this law, But guess what? My country's laws say I'm innocent, so I don't owe anybody anything. The issue is, what does God say? You have to obey the law of your land, but even above that, you have to obey what God says. If you cause an accident while driving and there are no other witnesses, you know that in our province, you can just blame the other person and say it was their fault, and if there's no other witnesses, the accident will be ruled no fault by ICBC. You will be in the clear legally, but you will not be in the clear morally because you did it. You did it. You are guilty. So what is right in the eyes of your country or your province or your city's legal system is not ultimately what matters. What matters is what is right in the eyes of the only judge who matters, the Lord. 
So write this down. God expects his people to do everything they can to make things right with those they have wronged within reason. And I put within reason not to say when you don't want to, but to say if a person says you owe me $20 million, that's obviously not reasonable. But God expects his people to do everything they can to make things right with those they have wronged. Now let's move on. Verse 20. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Now, before I comment on those verses, I want to draw our attention to verses 26 through 27 because they're connected. And they say this, If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Two weeks ago, BJ talked a whole lot about the historical and cultural context of the Book of the Covenant. And he explained why slavery existed in Israel and what it looked like at that time. And if you missed that message, please go watch it online or listen to it online because I can't cover the same content again in this message. But you should remember that slaves in Israel had to willingly sell themselves into slavery, and it could only be for a maximum period of six years. When the seventh year arrived, they were to go free. Add to that the fact that Israel had no prisons, and let me ask you this. What is a slave owner to do if he has a bad slave? A lazy slave a disobedient slave, a troublemaking slave, a slave who abuses his fellow slaves. What is a slave owner to do? This tells us the slave would get a beating. And these laws were given to restrain a slave owner from taking that beating too far. Verses 26 through 27 tell us that if permanent physical harm was done to a slave, even the loss of a tooth, they would be free to go. The remainder of their term would be canceled. They could leave their abusive master and sign on with a more honorable master instead. That slave's now ex-master would then have the reputation of being an abusive master, meaning he would have a very difficult time getting anybody to sign on to be his slave in the future. And that would impact his business. It would deeply affect his ability to earn income in the future, all kinds of stuff. As a result, under these laws, slave owners would not want to risk harming their slaves in any permanent manner or harming them in any way that might even risk them being harmed in a permanent manner. They're not going to beat them to within an inch of their life. They're not going to take that chance because they would risk facing significant punishment or the loss of the ability, ability to employ slaves in the future. Now, this seems like a good time to remind us of a fallacy that I mentioned in our previous study, the fallacy of thinking that our present society is the wisest, best, and most enlightened society that has ever existed. That's a total fallacy. We look at an issue like beating a slave and we say, oh, that's so savage. That's so primitive. But let me ask you, is it really better to have a justice system like America has where millions of its citizens are locked up in prisons? 
Or would it be better if those who are in jail for nonviolent offenses, for drug use and drug dealing, for theft, or would it be better if they had received a serious beating and then been released? They would be back with their families. Many of them would be back with their children. Those children would grow up with parents around and in the house, which would break this cycle of generational crime. They would have received a serious enough punishment that they would not want to do it again. They wouldn't have to align themselves with a criminal gang just to be able to survive prison, thereby almost guaranteeing that they would reoffend when they got out in the future. As we think through these questions, let me ask you very seriously, which would actually be better for society? Is it really better having millions of people locked up in jails? Which is more humane? Which actually gives the greatest opportunity for rehabilitation? Which one? I'm going to suggest that the answers to these questions are not as simple as they may first appear to be. So write this down, just because I want us to remember this. There were no prisons in Israel's justice system. There were no prisons in Israel's justice system. God's laws are set up so that there can be a justice system that functions without prisons. Now, we're about to get into some verses that raise the issue of abortion. And if you've been through one or more abortions, the first thing I want to remind you of is the truth that the Lord loves you. Man, does he love you. He loves you so much. And his love for you was poured out and put on full display on the cross of Calvary where he died for all of your sins and all of my sins. It is God's desire that our identity would not be anything we do or anything we've done. It's God's desire that our identity would be child of God. That's who we are. That's who we're called to be. You know, the Bible tells us that God hates divorce. But when Jesus came to the earth as a man, he showed us that God doesn't hate divorcees. God hates sin because of its devastating effects. But he doesn't hate sinners. He died for sinners. He died for sinners. In the same way, we're going to find that the Lord hates abortion. But he does not hate people who have had an abortion. If you're listening to this or or watching this and you're a believer who has been forgiven and healed by God from the pain and trauma of abortion, then here's what I know about you. I know that while it's difficult to talk about, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and you don't want them to go through what you've been through. And I also know that you want those who have already been through it to know that we have a God who heals and forgives and restores. And so we're going to talk about what the Bible says about abortion because we love the truth and we love one another and we want to see each other walk in paths that lead to life. Let's read verse 22 together. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So the first part is really clear. There's a pregnant woman and she gets hurt because some people are accidentally or haphazardly fighting around her. If she's hurt but there's no lasting damage or impact, the offender has to settle that issue with the woman's husband. Some sort of compensation, some sort of fine, perhaps for medical attention, again, lost wages, something like that. Where this gets controversial is verse 23 and 24, because those verses are most famous for being the key text referenced by those who claim that the Bible supports abortion, because they will say, well, these verses only assign punishment based upon harm that's done to the mother. It doesn't reference harm done to the child or children, which proves that God and the Bible do not consider a child to have human value when it's still in the womb. To address this claim, or any claim that's made about any scripture, we have to begin by making sure we understand what the text is actually saying. Before we can discuss the application of a text, we have to first establish and understand what the text is actually saying. Now, how do we do that? We seek to understand the historical context of the place and time it was written, the author who wrote it, and the audience the author was writing for. We also need to examine possibly the original language as best we can to make sure we're getting the grammatical meaning right. When we move on to discussing the theological and practical applications of Scripture, we always do so in the context of the whole Bible. In other words, we don't look at one verse or one bit of Scripture and build a doctrine. We examine everything the Bible says because we know that Scripture never contradicts itself because God never contradicts himself. So we seek an interpretation that harmonizes with everything the rest of the Bible says, an interpretation that harmonizes with the full counsel of Scripture, because that's going to tell us that we're probably getting it right or close to. In the case of this portion of Scripture, we should note that contextually, this is not a Scripture about the subject of abortion. It's a Scripture about personal injury Law. So write that down first, please. Verses 21 through 25 were written as personal injury law, not a doctrine on abortion. Not a doctrine on abortion. This is a personal injury law statute. There were similar laws in a few of the other societal codes around in the ancient Near East at this time. For example, the Code of Hammurabi. The difference is that the Code of Hammurabi divided people into three different classes of society giving greater punishment when a noble woman's child was lost compared to a slave woman's child. And so it's worth noting that throughout the book of the covenant, God doesn't recognize class. He never assigns different punishments for different classes of people. The same justice system applies to all peoples. That concept alone was radical and unprecedented at this time in world history. So when we look at the contextual side of this verse, it, it's personal injury law. It's not a doctrine on abortion. 
When we look at the grammatical side of things, we get into the essence of the debate. Because to this day, scholars are divided on this question. In verses 22 and 23, is the harm that follows the incident in reference to the mother or to the child? And you can see how this would be a major issue. Because if the Lord only addresses harm done to the mother, then it would seem to imply that the child's life is not being valued at all. I'm going to share, for the sake of time, my personal opinion with you. As always, do your own research, come to your own conclusions. When I read these verses and I factor in the original Hebrew and the grammar, I believe there's a very simple reason that the subject is not identified as the mother or child. And that's because it's both. It's either and. I believe that when you read these verses, that is the simplest and most logical conclusion to draw based on the grammar. It's applying to both. That's why it doesn't identify a singular subject. And I have other reasons for holding that view just in this chapter, namely the fact that both murder and manslaughter have already been covered in Exodus 21. God doesn't need to address accidental killing again. He's already done that. If there's nothing different about this scenario, then God is being unnecessarily redundant just a few verses later. That seems highly unlikely. Obviously, there is something different about this scenario. What's the difference? Well, there's only one possible answer. The difference is that it's a woman who is pregnant. And that's why I believe the harm that follows is in reference to the mother and or the child or children. But let's play devil's advocate. Let's say that the harm that follows was only in reference to the mother. You'd still have to deal with the fact that when it involves a pregnant woman, manslaughter now gets you the death penalty. Did you notice that? In every other scenario, manslaughter does not get you the death penalty. It's not a capital offense. Murder is. So no matter how you slice it, God is ascribing significantly higher value to the death of a pregnant woman than the death of a man or woman who's not pregnant. Why? Again, there's only one possible answer. It's because she's carrying a child or children. Any way you slice it, God ascribes higher value to the life of a pregnant woman than he does the life of a man or a woman who is not pregnant. In other words, those who desire to argue in favor of abortion by using these verses, they cannot do so based upon simple logic and other verses that appear in this very same chapter. Now, as a result of this command, knowing that you could get the death penalty for accidentally killing a pregnant woman, knowing that whatever harm you did to them accidentally would then be done to you, how do you think people would act when a pregnant woman was around, when she walked in the room? Everyone would be real careful, wouldn't they? Any shenanigans and tomfoolery and fighting would, would come to a stop. Parents who had kids running around would, would put a stiff hand on their child's shoulder and tell them real seriously, that lady is pregnant. You need to be careful. Through this command, God was teaching his people that a pregnant woman was to be esteemed in society. She was to be treasured. She was to be 
protected because she was carrying the most precious and valuable cargo that exists on earth, human life, human life. So write this down. This law would have made people show extra care and concern whenever a pregnant woman was in their vicinity. It would have made people show extra care and concern whenever a pregnant woman was in their vicinity. Now, before we move on to the the third evaluatory issue with a text of how the Bible deals with the subject of abortion, I want to address what it says in verses 23 to 25, where it refers to life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This concept, an eye for an eye, is known as the law of retaliation. In Latin, lex talionis. To us, it can seem brutal, but it accomplished two incredibly important things. Firstly, it made people genuinely consider the question, would I want someone to do this to me? Would I want someone to do this to me? Because if what you did was against the law, that would be done to you. Think of a boy taking a girl out on a first date, and the girl's dad says to him, remember, whatever you do to her, I do to you. Do you think that might change the conduct of the boy? You bet it would. Absolutely. Lex Talionis made people genuinely think twice before mistreating anybody else. That's a good thing. The second thing that Lex Talionis accomplished was restricting, limiting retaliation and punishment by keeping it similar, keeping it proportional to the offense, which actually goes against our general human nature, by the way. If left unrestrained, we don't naturally respond proportionally. We tend to escalate. We want them to experience worse than they did to us. We want to teach them a lesson they'll never forget, so they'll never do it again. If they take an eye, we want to take both their eyes. And so in his wisdom and grace, God established Lex Talionis to prevent endless, escalating cycles of violence. The third issue we need to address, as I said, is how the issue of abortion is dealt with in the rest of Scripture. If you missed last week's message, I encourage you to listen to it or watch it because in it, I laid out the evidence and concluded that because God is the author of life, he alone has the right to determine when life begins and ends. Let me say it again. We established this last week from Scripture. Because God is the author of life, he alone has the right to determine when life begins and ends. That's the view the Bible takes on the issue of life. Life belongs to God and God alone. Now, in decades past, this would inevitably spark a debate between pro-life and pro-choice factions over the definition of life. And there would be arguments presented by both sides with the pro-lifers claiming that life begins at conception, while the pro-choicers generally argued that it did not begin until birth. Many Christians are, are not aware of what I'm about to tell you. The pro-choice movement no longer argues their point. The pro-choice movement no longer argues their position on the basis of when life begins. They've abandoned that point 
in the face of overwhelming biological evidence that's come to light in the past couple of decades and some significant philosophical and moral changes in our culture. And if you're at all interested in knowing why they've abandoned that and the biological evidence for life that I'm pointing about, you can go and watch tons of great videos on YouTube that explain why life begins at conception and deal with things like genetics and genetic coding and genetic potential from the moment of cell fertilization. Suffice it to say, the pro-choice movement doesn't argue their position based on when life begins. They now argue their position pretty much exclusively based on the issue of authority. Their position is that abortion is permissible because the woman has authority over the child because of the child's location. They believe that because the child is inside the woman, it is part of her body and the woman has authority over her body and therefore the life of the child. Pro-choicers will generally not argue anymore over the fact that abortion is killing or that it is taking a life. They won't argue that generally. They don't like the word murder because they define murder as taking a life that you don't have the right to take, and they believe that a woman has the right to take the life of her baby in utero. In many ways, I'm grateful for the clarity at least this brings on the issue because for the Christian, the issue of authority is simple. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. God has authority over our lives. Every area, every part of our lives, every part of us. It's simple for Christians. This concept is central to Christianity and is expressed all throughout the scriptures. But let me give you two specific verses that make it just so plain as it relates to this subject. They're on your outlines. In Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So again, Scripture is explicit that for the Christian, for the Jesus follower, for the child of God, we view every part of us, including our bodies, as belonging to God. We view our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit where God resides, and we're called to honor God with the way that we treat our bodies because our bodies belong to God. They are his temple. Now, I know that I'm not addressing, and I can't address in this message, all the possible hypothetical situations and scenarios that could unfold around the issue of abortion. I can't cover all of those in any one message. That's what the Holy Spirit, the Bible, prayer, fasting, home groups, and otherwise mature believers are for. I'm addressing the core overarching principles in this message. And for the believer, for the disciple of Jesus, we traded our lives for his. We traded our lives for his. Our lives now belong to him. That was the deal at the moment of salvation that we accepted. We get all of Jesus and he gets all of us. It's the greatest deal that's ever been offered and ever will be offered in all of time in every dimension and every age that will ever exist. But that's the deal. 
all of us for all of Jesus. We now belong to him. And so as a believer, I'm called to wake up every day, lay down my will and my desires at the foot of the cross. I'm called to crucify my own desires on a daily basis and echo the words spoken by Jesus in anguish in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. So write this down. I know it's a long one, but it's as simple as I could put it. The issue of authority is the dividing line on the issue of abortion. Christians believe God has ultimate authority over our bodies and lives. The world believes we have ultimate authority over our bodies and lives. The issue of authority is the dividing line on the issue of abortion. At the same time, this relatively recent clarification by those who are pro-choice grieves me more deeply than I can put into words because as a culture, we have said, yeah, we know it's killing babies. We know. We just believe that that's okay. And the mother's reasons for doing that are entirely personal and nobody else's business. She can do what she wants with that life. And I understand that a lot of women get abortions because they feel they're facing incredibly difficult circumstances, but I need to be very clear and honest about what it means to be a Christian. It means that our model is Jesus, including the Jesus that I just mentioned, who prayed in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and did not turn away from what the Father was asking him to do, go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. To follow Jesus, to really follow Jesus, means we don't make life decisions based on how difficult it's going to be or how qualified we feel for the task or whether we feel financially prepared, mentally prepared, emotionally prepared. To follow Jesus means making life decisions the same way Jesus did, which is by asking the question, what does my heavenly Father want me to do in this situation? Because he has authority over my life. And pleasing him is the goal of my life. And then like Jesus, it means having the faith to walk in obedience. Even when you don't know how it's going to work out. Or even when you know it's going to be very painful and very difficult. The ultimate issue around the subject of abortion is authority. Who has ownership of my life? Who has ownership of the life of an unborn child? For the believer, the answer is God. But the truth is that God owns life itself, and that's why it's such a grievous thing when we step onto his throne and claim for ourselves the authority to end life, a life that God ordained, a life with a spirit that will live for eternity, a life so valuable, Jesus shed his blood and gave up his life to save it. Do you know why God puts children inside their mother? Do you know why humans don't lay eggs? 
It's because God intended the womb to be the safest, most comforting, reassuring place for a child to grow while it is in its most vulnerable stages of life. God created the womb to be a sanctuary, a place where the creator does what only he can do, create life. And what abortion does is invade that sanctuary, that temple, that sacred space, so that it can murder the creation of God and set up a throne for oneself to proclaim, I'm God, I'm God, and I deserve to be worshipped, not the Creator. And I know that's hard to hear, but Christian, we need to be grieved. We need to be grieved by the reality of abortion. And it's important that we understand all of God's heart as it relates to this issue. Scripture teaches us that there are real demonic forces. The Bible calls them principalities and powers behind many of the evils that plague our world. In the ancient Near East and to this day across the world, people worshipped gods who offered them something specific they were looking for. This is generally the main concept in polytheism, religions that worship a pantheon of gods. Polytheists believe there are different gods that you worship and sacrifice to based upon your desires. The god Mammon represented wealth and money. Baal represented intellect. Asherah, sexual pleasure. And Moloch represented prosperity. Moloch is famous for being worshipped by those ancient enemies of God and his people, the Canaanites. And Moloch is most famous to those who study the scriptures and to archaeologists for one thing, his endless demands for child sacrifice. I won't get into all the gory details now. You can do that on your own if you so desire. My point is that the trade being offered on a religious perspective was simple. Moloch offered prosperity in exchange for your children. Prosperity in exchange for your children. Moloch did not get old and die. The demonic power behind Moloch is more active today than he's ever been. And he's still calling for endless child sacrifice by offering in exchange the promise of prosperity. I looked up some figures online related to abortion around the world, and, and I have to be honest, I, I was not even remotely prepared for what I found. Uh, when I found these figures, I, I spent a good minute just crying in my office because I just, I, I just could not, I cannot believe still what these numbers are. I looked this up. I double-checked them. I, I checked multiple sources because they were so unbelievable to me. But the latest numbers tell us that worldwide, Moloch receives over 73 million offerings per year in the form of abortions. 73 million. Every year, our world aborts double the population of Canada. Every year, we murder double 
the population of Canada in the womb. Now hold on, because do you know how many children are born per year worldwide? Right now it's around 140 million. That means that more than one out of every three pregnancies on earth end in abortion. More than one out of every three on earth end in abortion. We're killing a third of all babies on earth every year. We're killing them, sacrificing them to Moloch. Get this, I I did the math. Heaven is filling up faster from aborted babies than it is from people making salvation decisions for Jesus Christ. Heaven is being populated faster through abortion than it is through the gospel. That's unbelievable. Godly people were once astonished by the evil of the Canaanites and their practice of child sacrifice. What would those same godly people think or say if they could see our world today? Not only do we practice child sacrifice, we've industrialized it. Entire nations have devoted billions of dollars to Moloch outreach, Moloch evangelism, so that people all over the world who are too poor to have access to abortion can now have the right to offer their children to Moloch as well. We've made access to abortion wherever you are in the world, a human right completely blind to the irony that it is a human right that robs a child of all of their human rights. Our world is worshiping Moloch on a scale that is is quite simply incomprehensible. I don't have a, a word for it other than to say it is an absolute horror. It is an absolute horror. Don't ever ask yourself, man, how could, how could the Germans turn a blind eye to the Holocaust? How could the, the Germans turn a blind eye as their neighbors are being dragged away and, and murdered and there's concentration camps where people are, are being killed? How could they not see it? Don't, don't ever say that. Because based on the numbers, we're all living in the Holocaust, except we're just killing babies all the time, all the time. What do you say except, man, man, the world needs Jesus. The world needs Jesus. The Lord told Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she went to visit her relative Elizabeth who was pregnant with the child who would grow up to become John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 tells us that when Mary entered the house, John leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb. He could sense the presence of the Savior in the womb. And Psalm 127.3 declares, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. I'm going to wrap up with a few concluding thoughts. Firstly, the Christian is pro-life. If you're a Christian, by definition, you are pro-life. 
but you're pro-life from the womb to the tomb. That means that we value human life more than money or lower taxes or convenience or anything else. If life is sacred, then it's sacred, always. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we're called to always be on the side of life, to side with life and aid the cause of life as often as we have opportunity. Secondly, I know I haven't done anything close to an adequate job of teaching on this subject. There's so much more to say than could be said in one message, but but this is what we're going to do for now. If you have questions or concerns or, or issues related to the subject of abortion, please go talk with another mature believer who knows the word. Talk to BJ or me or Jessica or Charlene or your home group leader, someone trustworthy who can counsel you in the scriptures and and share your questions, share your concerns, share your doubts. Dig into this issue and get to the truth, get to the heart of God. Don't keep those things to yourself because we're all in different places in our spiritual growth. And God has given us each other within the church as gifts to each other to help each other grow. So if you have questions, concerns, doubts, disagreements, don't keep them to yourself. Share them with a mature believer who can help you work through them. And then lastly, I want to say again to anyone who's been through an abortion, the Lord loves you. He loves you so much. And if you've given your life to him, then you're forgiven. And if you ever need a reminder that you've been forgiven, that's what communion is for. You can even do it by yourself at home. Find some grape juice and a cracker and and thank God that because his body and blood were real, your forgiveness is real as well. You are not your abortion or your abortions. You're a child of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. Throughout the New Testament, there's a word used in the original Greek that gets translated as save or saved. Most of the time, it's the Greek word sozo, sozo. And it's a word that refers actually to healing. But the idea is is total healing. It's 360 degree healing. It's the concept of being made whole. Now, some things like our human bodies are not going to be made whole on this side of heaven, unfortunately. But when it comes to our spirit, when it comes to the soul, The salvation that Jesus gives us includes sozo for the soul, the healing of the soul, the spirit being made whole. So if you're watching this or or listening to this message and you're a believer, but you've been through an abortion or abortions and you've never really been healed within your spirit, I want you to know that Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to heal you. And he is willing to heal you. And I'm going to pray for you in just a moment if you want that healing. And if you do want it, I'm going to ask that you would just simply receive it in faith as a gift from God as you received your salvation. And as I pray, you agree with me and you say, yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And if you wake up with any doubts tomorrow about the fact that you're forgiven, about the fact that you've been healed, just begin to thank the Lord in faith again that you've been healed, you've been made whole, you've been forgiven. 
walk in that healing. Stand in that healing. Stand on the promises of God's word day after day after day and walk in the fact that you are sozo. You've been made whole by the Lord. Wherever you are, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. And let's, let's pray first for those that I just mentioned. Father, we, we come together and we pray for anyone who is still dealing with the pain of an abortion, anyone who has been saved by you, but, but Lord, they don't feel and experience yet the healing in their spirit from this issue. It's a deep wound, a deep scar that they're not over yet. We pray right now in faith in the name of Jesus for absolute healing to every area of their spirit, every area of their soul. We know you want to do it, Lord. We know that you're willing. And so we pray that they would receive your healing right now in Jesus' name and that they would wake up tomorrow and stand in that healing and walk in that healing. Father, I pray that you would help us to be pro-life all the time in every area of life, to reflect the value that you place on life, to reflect the truth that every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God. They're sacred. They're a special creation made by you and paid for with your blood, Jesus. And then, Lord, lastly, we just very simply ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our world is... Our world is broken beyond repair by anyone except you. And we long to see you heal it. And we long to see our world experience sozo, being made whole, being healed by you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to our online services. They're updated every Monday afternoon, but you can stream them all week on Facebook, YouTube, and our website at mynewhope.ca online. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to mynewhope.ca gospel right now. You'll find a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing, so go there right now. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through His Word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website at mynewhope.ca slash give. And finally, we want to invite you to follow our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca for all the latest updates and encouragements throughout the week. We love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.